Hello, everybody. Welcome to the MBA is Dead podcast. Today on our show, we are hosting Lou Lee, founder of Blooming Founders, an award-winning company that helps early-stage entrepreneurs grow their businesses through content and training. Before that, Lou had a career in corporate, launching FMCG products for Procter & Gamble across Western Europe. If you don't know what FMCG is, that is stands for Fast Moving Consumer Goods. That's all the sort of toothpaste and shampoo and anything that you can basically buy at a grocery store. She also worked on several consulting projects for McKinsey, big, big, big consulting firm, BMW and T-Mobile. In 2016, Lou published the book, Dear Female Founder, which contains 66, that's actually quite a lot, 66 personal letters of advice written by female entrepreneurs from 20 countries. That's also a lot of countries, very impressive. I always love stories from people who ditch the corporate world to do their own thing. It's never an easy route, always fraught with challenges. So I'm very curious to hear her story, how she did it. Needless to say, this is gonna be a good one. Lou, welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. <laughs> How's it going? It's going well. I mean, you know, the, a few things happened this week, first week of January 2021, but keeping the good spirits up. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's been a it's been an absolutely crazy week. Um, all the more reason for us to focus on the future and uh, entrepreneurship and startups and how we can have a positive impact uh, on our environment. Um, so yeah, so as I was, you know, we were kind of talking offline before I started the show. Um, I start these conversations with a, a classic question, um, which is basically, you know, what did you study uh, for your undergrad? And what was your first job after that? And, and we can go from there. Yeah, great. So I actually didn't do an undergrad in that sense. Um, I studied in Germany. And um, when I entered university, we didn't really had the bachelor master system. So when you go in for a degree, you're kind of like locked in for four years, uh, you know, of at least four years, probably five or six, depending on, you know, what, what you do in between, how long you'll, 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 you'll take. Um, and it's a, it's a master's equivalent basically. So, so yeah, so that's what I did. I did a master's in business. And um, my first job after graduation was at uh, McKinsey um, in Munich. So I started out as a management consultant um, because that was kind of like the job to have um, if you didn't want to, you know, do investment banking. Um, if you are a business graduate. So hold on, let me let me just understand this correctly. Was your degree in business? a part of like one degree that was also your undergrad? Like, I know it's not the exact same as in Western systems, but is that essentially what I'm understanding? It was kind of like wrapped it, wrapped up into one? It's basically the undergrad and the master's together. Right. Yeah. Okay. And how many years is that? 
it's minimum four years, uh, but then you have to you know do X amount of credits. And uh, you can do those credits in four years if you're kind of like really, you know, organized and disciplined. But then, you know, people want to go abroad to study or they want to do internships. So you can like take semesters off for that. And um, so, yeah, so I did five years in total um, because I did uh, a full year abroad instead of one semester. And then also took a semester off to do two internships. Got you. Got you. And those internships, did they have any influence on on your decision-making process as to what you would do after you graduate or was it just sort of independent? No, no, for sure. I mean, I did uh, six internships in total. So, I mean, Germany is a is an internship-led country, so it might actually sound co- pretty crazy to, to other people. But um, if you, if you um, graduate from university without at least like two or three internships, like you're not going to get a job basically. So everybody knew that, you know, you had to do internships at some point. Um, I then, you know, didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I kind of like applied for different internships. I did done those. And then I think I was kind of like getting towards the end of my um, second. So the, just before like the second, the sorry, the last year of university, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was like, okay, let me take a semester off to do two more internships because then maybe I'll, I'll you know, know more. And uh, yeah, so I pretty much done, you know, six internships just to see what I like, uh, which industries I like, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I got a open job offer through one of those internships, which was at Procter & Gamble. Um, so I held that. But then, you know, I think when I was in uni, I was very much led by what was kind of, you know, popular or I just wanted to kind of like, you know, do the best of the best, basically. And and that was, you know, investment banking or management consulting. And um, I knew from the beginning that investment banking was not my thing, but um, I was very much kind of, you know, into the management consulting track. And uh, and then, you know, I, I applied um, to McKinsey um, uh, as a graduate, sort of for a graduate role without having done an internship in consulting before because I was just so busy doing like all of my other internships. It just, I just ran out of time basically. Um, and then I was like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, just do it as a job. Um, but uh, it turns out that that was actually, you know, not really what I enjoyed. I should have actually done it as an internship before because so, then I would have known. Um, yeah. And, what, and then what was I, it that you didn't like about it? Like, or what was it? it was, what, what did you do at the, at McKinsey? So, so I guess, um, I graduated in October 2008. So I also graduated, you know, into a very bad time economically. Um, And therefore, my first project was actually an internal project. I didn't, you know, I wasn't sort of on on a client project. And I was literally sitting in the office in McKinsey's office um, in Frankfurt and just kind of like working on like an Excel, um, you know, thing like, 14 hours a day, basically. And that was just not really what I signed up for, right? Um, I wanted to, sort of, you know, sort of do more of the external stuff. And, um, and so then... What, I, if I, sorry, not because I... I mm-hmm. had not, myself, and I think probably a lot of people listening have never had this kind of experience. 14 hours a day on an Excel sheet. What is on this Excel sheet? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's a good question. So my first project actually on McKinsey was to do a um, internal um, analysis of um, six industries in Germany. And I had to analyze um, 
100 M&A deals in the last decade in those six industries. So I, I basically analyzed 600 M&A deals um, and those were on the Excel sheet. Gotcha, gotcha. So, uh, so I'm, I'm like... You're just looking at details of those MA deals. What is it like? Were they successful? Yeah, successful? it was like a lot of, you know, um, like I, I had, um, if I remember correctly, I had something to like, you know, start off with, but then I had to like, you know, uh, complete the data because obviously you don't have like all the complete, like, you know, there's no perfect data database out there, right? That just like mm -hmm. has like everything. So um, I pretty much had to build the database, like research, a lot of Googling, right? Like just kind of finding information about those companies, their numbers, and, and then, um, it was kind of like looking at um, how things went after they um, they merged, right? Because when you merge, then um, a lot of things can go wrong post-merger, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, sort of post-merger integration of the, the, the culture, the people, like, you know, like all sorts of things basically can happen. Um, and it just you just kind of like you know analyze like everything and you look at you're trying to find similar patterns so because obviously McKinsey is a consulting firm right so because then you're trying to find find similar patterns so then you can um, kind of derive recommendations of best practices of you know post merger integration right gotcha, kind of like gotcha. you know and like this is what we have seen and this is you know probably like things you should think about and prepare for et cetera, et cetera you know. And so what I'm understanding is that what you didn't like about this is the lack of interacting with people. Like you felt that you were just sort of staring at a screen all day and it was, that, yes. that, that just was not really fulfilling. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I'm a very communicative person. I mean, I can do analysis, but I, I can't, I mean, it's just like my soul just dies basically when you're sitting in front of Excel, literally, mm -hmm. you know, 12, 14 hours um, a day for like three months. You're just kind of like, okay, what's, what's the point? Right. And so what did you do after that? Um, I actually asked to be on a different project because I really was, you know, suffering. And, um, and then they put me onto a, a, a client project in Munich with a car manufacturer and uh, that was a lot better. So I kind of like enjoyed that project. Uh, but then, you know, it was 2000, so that was like then 2009 and uh, early 2009. And, and it, it was just kind of, you know, the whole economy was very uncertain just like now. And uh, there were like a lot of rumors about banks collapsing and, and stuff like that. Um, so as a result, you know, like all of the, the, the projects were all around cost cutting, like restructuring, um, all of that stuff, basically, right? And and again, you know, I just didn't really feel that that was kind of like something I was interested in. Like I was always um, more, or I mean, always. I mean, that was the first time I realized I'm I'm more interested in growth topics, right? Like expansion, doing something new, like reaching new markets, coming up with new things. If it's all about contraction, contraction, contraction all the time then it's just not it just doesn't give me joy basically right and um and and the, and the future was uncertain i mean we didn't know is this crisis going to last for a year for two for three like who knows basically right and um so that was kind of you know on the on the sort of work content side where i just kind of also felt um this was not for me and i think the last point was also that McKinsey has a very restrictive culture, right? To the point of, you know, there are certain rules of how you dress, how you behave, how you sort of, I mean, I guess, especially as a female, like what type of jewelry you can or cannot wear. Um, I got comments on, you know, how I should wear my hair, et cetera, et cetera, where I just kind of like, 
I mean, I was 25 at the time, so I, you know, I was just like, okay, cool, I'll I'll do it, you know, because if, if that's you know what what the rules are, I'll 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 do it. But then over time, you know, and after, especially after, like once I left, like many 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 years after, I was like, this is actually pretty sexist. I mean, like how on earth, you know, like why why are um. So one thing, for example, like I was um, asked to tie my hair, like I have very long, like black hair, right? Mm. Um, and I've always worn my hair like that, right? And uh, uh, and at McKinsey, you know, they they asked me to tie my hair back into a kind of um, kind of ponytail, like a lower ponytail, basically, because my hair was apparently too disruptive or something like that, right? Or like it, it made me appear too girly, you know, in that sense. And and that was not like the image that, you know, I should portray when I'm like with the client and stuff like that. So, <laughs> so all of these kind of like, you know, things, I mean, at the time I was like, okay, cool, you know, all right, I'll do it. Um, and you just try to comply, right? But then, you know, now I think like, seriously, I mean, if they can't, you know, like tolerate you as you are and, and just kind of like, you know, trying to like, um, if they have to try to mold you, then it's probably not the, the right environment for you. Right. Mm. And then, and then, so the lesson there was, okay, McKinsey's not for me. McKinsey is not for me. Um, I just basically felt completely off there um, for various reasons, right? And then you can sort of, you know, I have definitely rationalized that into like, sort of, okay, this is what I didn't like, this is what I didn't like, and and this is also what I didn't like, which is, you know, sort of um, me not being able to just be myself. Um, and uh, thankfully, I had a, that open job offer from Procter & Gamble from one of my internships um, from at that time then almost like a year and a half ago. And, um, yeah, so basically, you know, I kind of like, uh, emailed them and be like, yeah, you know, I graduated and, uh, I would like to, you know, start, like, when can I start? And, um, you know, what's up basically, right? <laughs> like, what's the process? And then, um, I started with, I, um, PNG in March, 2009. Yeah. And what did you do with them? I was doing, I was in brand management. So I joined um, Pantene as a you know brand and it's always working in hair care, beauty care. And uh, I was pretty much leading initiatives of product launches. So it was basically, you know, exactly what I wanted to do, bringing new products to market and kind of creating um, all the advertising material around it. Um, I actually sort of led a um, um, product innovation. So you distinguish between product and commercial innovation. Uh, product innovation means that you're actually bringing a new product, you know, into the market. So I actually got to design also like the, um, the, the, um, the labels, you know, on the bottles and stuff. Uh, commercial innovation means that you just basically, you know, promote the same product in a different way. You just kind of come up with like a really cool marketing campaign and ad and stuff like that. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I definitely learned like a lot, literally working, you know, working from R and D, trying to understand what the product does. Um, so shampoos, conditioners, treatments, and then um, qualifying it with uh, consumers. So I've done, Tons of focus group, probably eight or so um, across Germany and, and the UK, which were our lead markets. Um, then worked with the agencies to um, create the, the TV ad, the print ad, like in-store materials, like digital, like everything. Um, and then deployed it to the countries because I was in the European headquarters in Geneva. And I had uh, 13 countries that I, you know, then deployed the materials to. And then they would take it um, from there, adapt it to local, you know, translate it and things like that. And then launch it into the actual market. And so how, and how long were you at PNG for? Uh, about four years. 
Oh, four um, years. Okay, so this, you had a proper stint there. So you you liked that role, then I take it. Yes, yes, I liked. Um, so I think the first two years in Geneva were perfect. I mean, I was so happy. Um, it was amazing. Uh, and then they actually offered me an expat assignment, which actually was quite rare for somebody with you know two years experience. But it's just kind of like so happened that I think I got definitely lucky on that part because um, under Pantan, I mean, it's the world's largest hair care brand, right? They did a complete restage of the brand. Um, so new bottles, new names, new kind of like, you know, like everything new, right? And um, so it was a pretty big deal for the brand uh, back in 2011. And um, they needed someone to lead that relaunch in Germany. And I was the only person, I think literally in all of PNG that knew the brand and spoke German. <laughs> so then they, they offered me that assignment and then, you know, sort of I, I took it um, and went back to Germany, but as an expat, which was kind of weird, but because but, um, I was employed in, in Geneva, right? So, you know, I went back actually to, to um, my home, quote unquote, and... Um, and let the the launch from there. Um, the first year again was great because I was like fully focused on the launch. And then the second year, you know, just started to to sort of go down because um, I was done with with hair care because after three years, I mean, there's only that much you can learn about shampoo really. And uh, I've done pretty much. I felt like I've done everything right. I mean, I've launched a product. I've done like a rebrand and all of that stuff. So. I wanted to learn something new. I wanted to you know, maybe also go um, you know, abroad, maybe to Asia or to the US or something like that. And um, that came just, it collided with the time where P&G started to restructure their beauty departments. Um, and as a result, they just didn't really let anyone anywhere. Um, it was actually, it was majorly beauty and also other departments. I mean, they basically sort of started um, letting people go. And uh, it was very sort of a voluntary process, actually, because they didn't want to fire people. It was just basically um, like leaning, like sort of getting more lean, right, as an organization. Mm -hmm. And um, and I also at the time had a difficult boss. Um, so again, you know, there were some things that came together where I thought, okay, I'm not really learning uh, new things here anymore. I'm not really getting that. Like, I, I can't really count on my boss to defend me or stand up for me in the next sort of, you know, promotion um, discussion, right? So I just basically lost perspective. And I thought that realistically, you know, my path here is not going to be amazing, basically. Um, I can probably stay here and just kind of like, you know, um, dabble along. But I was kind of 20, 28, 29 at the time. And I thought, you know, I can, I can do more, right? I can do better. I can do better on my own. And that's when I decided to leave, you know, corporate altogether because I just thought that if I were to apply to L'Oreal, Unilever, any other FMCG brand, I'm sure I would have gotten a job um, and I probably would have gotten, you know, the, the, the promotion, right? But it would have been the same thing. I think I just felt that, you know, how, how can something turn from two years of like amazingness, like, you know, literally a hundred out of a hundred uh, to something that's kind of more like 40 out of a hundred. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah. And I thought that it's just serendipity a lot, right? Like when you work in the big companies, you can't really guarantee who's your boss and people rotate and, you know, times change and just kind of all things can happen. And I just felt I didn't have control over the situation and um, I wanted to 
get back into control to my own, um, like being able to drive my career, right? And so, and so, what did you do? I quit. <laughs> you quit spontaneously without a, a, a plan B. Yeah, I mean, it was not that that spontaneous. As, in, as it, it was very intentional because they were offering, you know, the first wave of people. They were offering like severance packages, basically, right? Because they were like, oh, you know, we want to lean out the organization, but we don't want to, you know, sort of fire anyone. But if if you were thinking, you know, about other opportunities anyway, then let us know. <laughs> And then we'll make it nice for you to kind of like leave. And then I was like, oh, that's me. Um, yeah. So basically I, I left on that note. And then, um, uh, uh, but then I had like still like four months or five months to, to. so I didn't even have like a notice period or something. Basically. I basically sort of exited on that program. And then, you know, it took like five months to actually sort of do it. Uh, but when I then left, I didn't really have a plan. Right, like I, I actually left Frankfurt at uh, at the time as well because I was an expat there, right? So I was not really everything was temporary anyway. Um, and then I moved back to Switzerland uh, to kind of gather myself, and um, yeah, and that was kind of that was pretty tough, I have to say, because you almost you know you have to start from scratch. You didn't really know what I, what you wanted to do, and you also don't really have a job and you don't have a boss anymore, so nobody to tell you what to do, um, what's on your work plan and stuff like that. So you had to create everything from scratch. Um, I also uh, split up with my boyfriend at, at that time. So, you know, I was literally like on my own. And I have to say that was pretty, pretty tough. Like I would not recommend anyone to do that. Actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I think leaving a job and leaving a partnership, like your a relationship at the same time is... Uh, yeah. And yeah, leaving that, a city, leaving yeah. a city, right? So I also right. wasn't really in... Um, around my my friends anymore so it's kind of like oh great i'm like in the city completely foreign on my own what now <laughs> and yeah exactly so, so what did you do um i have to say i mean i've been very honest like i think i got into a bit of a depressive state basically so for the first like three to four months i didn't really do anything i think i was just basically i was i was happy if i was you know <laughs> kind of somehow making it through the day um I, I I thought a lot, obviously, that you know during that time, and um, and it took about those you know four months or so, and then I sort of you know picked myself back up and I started sort of teaching myself some some skills. Um, so Adobe, right, like InDesign, Photoshop. I started the blog. Um, I kind of like you know was very interested in. Um, uh, image consulting, so that I th that was what I initially thought I would do, um, because. I saw that gap within PNG and also, you know, in other corporates. And I, you know, we're talking with other friends that work for other companies where you reach to um, you reach a middle management level, right? And um, and that's fine. But then, you know, when you have to get the next promotion, that's kind of like where the pyramid really shows, right? And for a lot of women, I think, you know, that's kind of like where they they start to um, overwork themselves. Right, because they really want to sort of you know prove their performance and things like that, but that's just kind of like the the first part, right? And when you think about image, there's actually um, a framework a framework called, called PI P I E. So performance is the first part, right? And then um, you have uh, the image, the actual image, and then you have exposure, 
right? So if, if you are just kind of a high performer, but you don't really have the image of a leader and you also don't have exposure to people who, you know, to the high level people, then you can perform as much as you like. You're not going to get the promotion, right? Mm, um, so, so that's kind of like the thing, right? And then also if, you, if you're a high performer and you have the exposure to senior management, but you don't have the image, then that's not going to work out either because they're really like, oh, great, you know, she's a... Uh, diligent worker and we know we all know those women that are very busy kind of you know bees and and hold everything together but you know she's like we could just use her as like you know the, the, the busy bee and, and that's fine right you don't really portray the image of a leader so that's kind of like what I thought was interesting um, where I was in 2012 and uh, 2013 actually and uh yeah so i kind of trained as an image consultant started the blog you know got into like you know sort of um fashion a little bit like styling and and just kind of like you know how to how to build up your image and your brand um that type of stuff right so that's what i did when i was um in the, f- the first year after i left my job and so what, what year is this that we're talking about uh that was 2013 13. Okay. Yeah. And then where do we go from here? So I've done that for about a year in Zurich. And then I realized that um, it's not really for me because A, the business model is in a way that where you, when you perform the service, if your client uh, is clever and I obviously, you know, work with clever women, then they would get it and they would just kind of be on their path and start working on themselves, right? And mm-hmm. it's not like a, a change you kind of achieve overnight. It's it's a process uh, to kind of like, you know, do some things and then, you know, see the results and kind of learn from it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so people didn't really come back to me. Um, so it was kind of like the repeat purchase of my services was kind of close to zero, right? And I spent... Well, hold on, if I can just just to make sure that I'm fully getting this was it almost like a form of career coaching that you were doing not career coaching as in like sort of where do you want to go or where where, where you know you should be going and how to sort of apply and stuff like that but but actually very tangibly um you know how to how to dress like color theory like color psychology um and then also a bit like you know how how to behave how to speak how to communicate basically yeah right Okay. Yeah, so body language, right? When you present something. Um, yeah, all of that stuff, basically. Okay. Right? And so, um, so for that year, you were essentially attempting to create like a consultancy around this. Yes, yes. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. and then after a year, you realized, okay, the business model wasn't really, uh, it wasn't working out. It wasn't working out. Um, the repeat purchases were close to zero. So I spent the majority of my time on business development and only a small proportion of my time doing the actual work, right? Like working with the client. Um, so that was not great. Um, and then also from those clients that I did work with, I kind of like felt again, like out of line with myself because basically when you sort of, you know, when people, when people seek image consulting, they actually think that there is something wrong with them or not most, like I would say most of them, right? Not all of them. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but they, they're seeking that service because they're, they're thinking they're not good enough and hence they have to portray a different image. Right. Right. And, 
And kind of like, you know, as I was doing this, I was kind of like, maybe you're just, you're just in the wrong company, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it's just kind of like, I think I just basically, you know, thought that if you're in a company that doesn't really appreciate you and you're, you're clearly awesome, right? Maybe you should just find a company that does, does appreciate you. Well, you don't have to like change yourself, right? And, and, um, and it was ironic because basically the service that, you know, that I was providing was pretty much kind of like helping people to portray this, a certain image basically, right? But basically the, this image that people wanted to portray was very often not who they w really were, right? Mm -hmm. And then I just kind of like felt a bit bad even like about my own service I'm like I don't really want you to do that honestly you know so so that was kind of like a bit off as well right I was like oh hmm. I mean I mean now I can see what happened but but at the time I just really felt like mm, I'm not really sure I, I just basically also like wasn't really driven right to to find more clients and, and to do the, the work basically because I just basically wasn't a hundred percent um, you know, aligned with the work myself. Um, and then I started to think about other, you know, opportunities or other places because Zurich and Switzerland is very, you know, small and not very entrepreneurial. And I looked at London and I was like, you know, uh, London looks good, right? So why not? So towards the end of 2013, I kind of like came to London for the first time um, and you know, spend a couple of weeks there and just kind of like, you know, networked, went to a couple of events, conferences, you know, exhibitions and all that stuff. And I met a, um, a nice lady there who had a travel um, agency and, um, and we sort of, you know, got along well. And, um, and because my next idea actually was to provide, to provide consultancies for retailers and brands to attract more Chinese customers, right? Consumers, to, like mainly tourists. Because right. mm -hmm. the Chinese tourism market was growing, and um, it's oh, where a did lot. you meet this woman, by the way? Hmm? Where did you meet her? Um, the, that the lady? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was at um, the Travel World Market. So every year in November, not last year, but typically every year, um, there's like a huge expo in um, London and um, Excel, right? Like the large Excel center close to city airport where basically, you know, it's like all the travel companies kind of gather and it's literally like a mini like expo, right? Like you have literally the whole world and there. Why, why, and also, were you, why did you go there? Were you thinking of getting into some sort of travel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because basically, I, like my second idea was actually a consultancy around um, uh, helping retailers and brands attract more Chinese tourists, right? Okay, got you. So, so yeah, so I, I wanted to network in the travel industry. Mm. Didn't know anyone, right? So I spent four days there, like walking up and down like the exhibition halls and just talking to people and um, mainly also kind of, you know, like talking to hotels and just trying to understand like, you know, what people do in the market already in respect to serving Chinese customers. And uh, yeah, that's how I met that lady. And then she, I went then back to, to Zurich and then she called me um, in February 2014 and said that, you know, she landed a contract, but she would need me to co-fulfill it and what I would be interested in that consulting kind of, you know, work. Mm. And I was, was sure. And then um, I moved to London the next month. <laughs> wow. Okay. And then from there? So, yeah, so that was then May, uh, sorry, March 2014. That's when I arrived in London first time. 
And um, I worked with her for a year, um, you know, doing the consulting thing. Um, so we were working with um, Selfridges mainly. And then I was also kind of out there, like, you know, trying to find like some of my own clients. And, uh, but, but, you know, the Selfridges account was pretty big. So it kept me busy for, for, for quite, a, quite a while. So and what, so um, you're essentially explaining to Selfridges strategies on how to attract. Chinese customers, yeah, Chinese mainly main, mainly tourists, but we also did include Chinese uh, students actually as well. Wow, interesting. Okay, and so yeah. what, just to just to give us a little bit of a taster, uh, <laughs> what, what does one do to increase their sales to Chinese tourists? Yeah, I mean, you look at the whole customer journey, right? Like it's basically starts. Um, it depends on like what they, but I mean, they basically wanted to do everything, right? Like, like re, like re look at like everything. I'm like, okay, cool. We can do that. Right. So it starts from, you know, uh, measuring, uh, do people even know about you? Right. Like when you are in China, you want to kind of uh, go on a trip to London and mind you, I mean, at that time there was still a lot of, um, you know, um, people who travel on those coaches, right. I mean, now there's a lot more independent travel, but but um, even just, you know, six years ago, a lot of people would actually come to the UK on a two week, three week trip and the whole itinerary would be, you know, made for them, be made for them. Right. Like they would then, land in Milan, get on a coach and they would just. Exactly. Like, exactly. Like, I mean, literally like Chinese people on a coach, like that's literally <laughs> what, what it is. Right. And that was, that was the big proportion of travel. Um, now I think. You know, the, the coin has flipped and now there's like more independent travel, but it's even more important for independent travel, right? It's kind of like, you know, if you go to London and you have all of his free time, like where do you go, right? People knew about Herod's because of Princess Diana and, you know, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to kind of come and shop for luxury, like where do you go? You go to Harrods, you go to Sloan kind of, you know, Square and Sloan Street. Um, then you probably go to, to Bond Street. Right. But not, not very many people actually knew about Selfridges as a department store and also about what is unique about Selfridges. Right. So it's a lot about, um, you know, understanding, are you even on the radar? OK, if you're not on the radar, I mean, they were, they were not. Right. Not that much. Right. And that, like, it's like, hey, how can we sort of start building that brand? And what is the story that you tell people? Right. Like, why would they go come to Selfridges? Right. And then, you know, you kind of like you work actually with a lot of you set up partnerships or you kind of quite try to do like activities where you engage with those tour providers because the majority of, you know, the, the business came through there. Right. So I'm like, how can you literally be put on the itinerary of that tour? Um, then you think about, you know, promotions and things like in-store, right? And how the user journey is in-store. For example, uh, what people don't know. I think most people don't know is like in China, you don't have minus one, like in any stores. Like minus you literally, one? yeah, like the the level when you go downstairs. Oh, right. right. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it is like, the typically doesn't exist. People don't go into the basement, right? Like you enter the, the um, you know, ground floor and then it's like one, and two, three. Up. Exactly. Uh, and then with Selfridges, they had a minus one, they had a basement level, and that's where the VAT tax return um, sort of counter was, right? Mm-hmm. So if you go and shop at Selfridges or any other shop, right, as a tourist, you want to get your VAT tax refund, which is 20%, you have to go to that counter and get the stamp from the, from the shop, right? Yeah. And otherwise you can't claim it, right? Uh, but 
if you actually can't find the counter, it might also just kind of, you know, hinder you from shopping it at all, right? Because you'd be like, I'm not going to be able to get my 20% back, basically, right? Yeah. So by having that counter in minus one, it actually meant that like a lot of Chinese people would never come, like, you know, would, would never think about going down there because it's not what they do, right? Yeah. Yeah. So again, you know, that was like another recommendation to move the counter from minus one to the third floor or something like that, somewhere like up basically where people, you know, kind of, it's it's more normal to go there, right? Uh, to get your stamp, right? Uh, and, you know, and there's obviously, you know, different Chinese um, festivities, like Chinese New Year, Singles Day, so et cetera, right? So they then start, you know, sort of preparing some campaigns. Um, and you, for you that. were able to divide, I, I mean, obviously we got a lot of ground to cover in terms of like your whole career, but I'm, I'm just, I like getting these sort of insights about how people work and and, you know, getting into the details a bit. You were able to provide these insights how? Because you've done the research yourself? Because you like So I was um I was born in China. Okay. That um, helps. So my yeah, <laughs> that helps. <laughs> and my whole family's Chinese. Uh, so yeah, I left China in when I was six and moved to Germany with my parents. So we immigrated. But I guess a lot of the Chinese cultural aspects, you know, I kind of get. But mm. then I also did a lot of research, right? right. You, so you, you amplified how, like what you already know anecdotally. Yeah, exactly. Through, through statistical research. Okay, so exactly. that um, so you did that for a year, and then and then what happened? And then I got a bit bored of it because you know you talk about Chinese tourists, and it's always like the same thing, basically. Uh, it's just basically the lack of understanding from the Western world, which is so low that you just keep on talking about like the same stuff. Right. But what I realized is that the tourism industry is very, very competitive. Like, oh my God, like it's very, very cutthroat. I had no, I wouldn't have thought it's that cutthroat. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of competition. There's a lot of people who literally make their whole um, living based on commission sales, like when they bring tourists into certain shops, basically. Right. Like we think that only happens when we travel to like, you know, the, like emerging countries and stuff like that, but it literally happens in the middle of London like, every day. Right? Um, so again, you know, I was like, you know, it's not really where like I want to grow basically, right? I mean, I can do it, but it's kind of like, okay, what now, right? And um, and it wasn't and, stimulating. Hmm? It, it wasn't stimulating anymore. You weren't learning. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um at the time, I actually ran a meetup group because I didn't know anyone uh, in London when I moved there, right? So I started the meetup group and I'm trying to, you know, organize my own events because I was missing kind of like a bit female company uh, as well. Because when you go out, like, you know, you network and all that, it's all good, but you actually meet majority, you know, of guys basically, right? And I wanted to meet them on the professional level, not on the personal level. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that sort of got me into some tricky situations sometimes, but Okay, that's, you know, you have to deal with that. But um, I was just kind of like, hey, it would be nice to have some girlfriends who are also entrepreneurial. So I started this meetup group uh, for entrepreneurial women. And then, you know, I kind of like, you know, started doing that. And that grew all along, you know, this year when I was, um, so 2014 then, right, uh, when I was uh, doing the consulting work. And, um, and then when I sort of got bored of the consulting work a little bit, like beginning of 2015, um, I thought, hmm, maybe there's something I can do with this group, basically, because it grew to about 1,500 people at the time. And uh, and our meetups were quite well attended, 
right? To the extent that actually I even started charging because, you know, I had to manage the attendance a little bit. I had to basically sort of, you know, get a better grip on who actually turns up. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was kind of you know, then the the thinking. And I I tried to do like a crowdfunding campaign to launch some like you know to launch a platform for female entrepreneurs. It failed, but uh, the, our launch party went really well, so that was profitable. <laughs> the rest of the campaign completely failed. But then I thought, oh, you know what, you know maybe we should just you know bootstrap and just focus on you know hosting these events because people come to the events. So what, what, when you say that, if like what what was the goal of that platform like what what would have been what would have success look like so um it was basically i mean i was like so ahead of everything right i mean it was basically it was called the female entrepreneurs organization at the time it's very formal and um it was basically memberships right like you become a member of the organization and then we um you know, do workshops and talks and uh, you know organize socials for networking and things like that right mm. So, um, yeah, it was basically, you know, just kind of very, very similar to what a lot of people and, and very similar to Blooming Founders, actually what Blooming Founders ended up doing. But I was trying to pre-sell those memberships when people, when A, female entrepreneurship wasn't like that much of a thing back then. And also people didn't really know much about, you know, me or, you know, what what the future could look like, basically. Right. And and so they couldn't really understand like the benefits. Um uh, and that's why actually the, the crowdfunding campaign failed in the end. Um, but, uh, you know, that's okay. <laughs> but, but, yeah, of course. I mean, it, there's so much learning to be had in, you know, within those processes. Um, but just to dive a bit further on this, like, what was the vision that, like, the membership would give them what, like, they would get access to the network, they would get access to events, uh, met, like, yes. mentoring, what, like, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah. I was very... Um, yeah, so events, workshops, uh, like socials, discounts to, um, you know, like our partner benefits and things like that, you know. Um, so like everything that I actually ended up doing, um, not not a partner discount, well, actually some, actually. And everything I ended up doing on the Blooming Founders, but this all pre-packaged and like trying to pre-sell basically, right? right. Um, so very similar to the IOD as well. I mean, I think that, you know, like, I guess the IOD was, is what people would know, but the IOD is very, um, it's the, what, institu- what the institute, of, um, institute of Directors. Okay, I don't know this. The, what, what is it's that? a very old, like, I mean, the average age of an IOD member is like 50, I think. Okay. Um, it's a very old traditional institutions of business owners and directors, right? Like it's the Institute of Directors. So it's like this membership body where you can become a member it costs about 600 pounds, I think, a year. And then you can have access to, um, they have like a very nice kind of, you know, building in Pall Mall. Then you have these events, you have um, other services that, you know, you know, included. You have, I don't know, access to some research libraries and things like that. So, um, so basically a support organization for business owners. And I was basically focusing on female entrepreneurs. Mm, uh, yeah, similar to that. And then, um, and then what what evolved out of this, out of the FEO? So basically, I learned that you know people didn't want to commit to a membership without having experienced anything, right? So I was like, okay, fine, but then I just basically do it anyway, <laughs> and I just started doing all of these things basically, right? So then, um, 
uh, I I actually launched under a different name. Um, I mean, we had like sort of this phase where we were we were the female entrepreneurs organization, but then. Um, I just realized there were some limitations around that. And also people thought it was a charity and people couldn't, you know, pronounce or, you know, um, spell entrepreneur. <laughs> so when you kind of tell people like my email address is blah, blah, blah at femaleentrepreneurs.org, people couldn't spell it basically. Right, right. right. Well, that is kind of long to be, to be fair, but uh, yeah, it is interesting how, uh, when it comes to marketing or sales, you can get blocked uh, by such details as spelling yeah. word. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, and I learned that when I, mean, I you know didn't think about it before. It's like this is straightforward, like you know, female entrepreneurs organization, right? But um, but yeah, so all of that, right? And obviously, the name was way too long for any social media handles. Right. Um, so, so yeah, so I changed the name uh, to Blooming Founders, uh, but it was still the same mission supporting female entrepreneurs through events, networking, kind of bringing people together and just kind of creating that infrastructure. Right. Because I was very set on this, like creating this infrastructure where people would come, meet, learn, and, and further them, like, you know, become better business owners. Right. Or become better entrepreneurs. Um, so from there, I actually moved away from the meetup group because, um, I felt that meetup wasn't really quite the, the right platform. It's good for social activities, but not really for business. So and I, meetup group, it was literally on meetup.com. It was literally on meetup.com. Yeah. 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 Um, and, um, and I closed down the group and I started, um, a Facebook group instead. And, um, uh, and a newsletter, basically. So then I moved also the events from pubs, you know, that was more just networking to Google Campus and started organizing uh, more content. So talks, panels, workshops, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that was the beginning of Blooming Fridays, I guess. Fantastic. And so where... We'll talk a little bit more. Like, so Blooming Founders, what is it now? Well, for the last five years, we have been running, you know, these events because starting from Google Campus, those talks and panels, um, we then, you know, grew, 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 grew and started hosting conferences and all that stuff. Um, we also opened a co-working space uh, sometime along along the way. Uh, but then obviously all of these activities, we had to stop with the pandemic last year. So now Blooming Founders is very much in transition because we're transitioning into online. We were pretty much a hundred percent, I mean, 95% we were offline focused, right? On bringing people together, whether it, whether it was at an event or in the co-working space. So now we're transitioning and we're looking into online content, like kind of, kind of like becoming like an edu more like an educational platform so kind of producing content ourselves becoming more of a media brand right um and i guess sharing the knowledge that we've always been sharing um not like the exact knowledge but like just the principle of you know entrepreneurial knowledge and business education uh through media um like just so online right blooming founders have you ever taken on investment no no, you're a hundred percent, as they say, bootstraps. Like bootstrap, yeah. You've, uh, you know, you've been running the show either on your own um, 
you know, investing your own cash or through profits from activities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's self and customer funded, I would say. <laughs> gotcha. And so, what would you say are were the main revenue drivers? What what really brought home the cash and allowed you to grow as much as you have? So, I mean, running events is actually like it doesn't really take much money to run events, right? Because you just basically in the beginning, you borrow everything from everybody, right? Like we got our, everything was sponsored, right? Like we got our venues for free. Sometimes we would get, even get the food for free. And if we didn't get food for free, like we would just, you know, we would just put out some like snacks and you know, water and orange juice. And that would cost me like 15 pounds per event or something. Um, and then you just sell tickets, right? So revenue was tickets. Uh, then when we did the larger events, we did sponsorship, um, as well. Uh, and then I published um, a book in 2016, about two years in. And uh, and that book, you know, I mean, it sells on Amazon. So that's, that's kind of like a bit of a side thing. Um, and when we opened the co-working space, um, we added a, a range of revenue streams. So then, you know, it was membership, uh, we had um, space hire, right? And anything else the virtual office yeah so people could register their their businesses um and when when you were us. first starting out and you know you say you know it seemed quite you know scrappy for lack of a better word that you're able to yeah. sort of just like put everything together what was the motivation for people to sponsor you was it because they felt that you had this sort of altruistic mission of supporting female founders or was it just because you're an entrepreneur or because you had it maybe it was independent of the type of people that were at your events but it was more that they just you know it was entrepreneurship in general they want access to your network what, what do you think were the drivers were there i think it's a mix of everything because um i started blooming founders full-time in August 2015, right? And uh, five years ago, the startup ecosystem in London was buzzing, right? There was like meetups everywhere, events, hackathons, startup weekends, right? So um, it was a very buzzing time and all of the big, you know, sort of, not all of them, but, but like a lot of kind of corporates or, or um uh, professional service firms, like accounting firms, law firms, you know, wanted to sort of be part of it and somehow have their brand in there. Um, but I think, I mean, I didn't even start with sponsorship, like corporate sponsorship until 2017, until I've kind of like, you know, built the community and grown like a lot, actually. So those um, first two years, you literally, it was, uh, you, you were just bankrolling it yourself or just getting the profits from the tickets. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and all the sponsorship I got at that time was uh, venue or or food and drink. Right, it was like, a, in, like yeah. what they call it, like in-kind. So in-kind, in-kind yeah. sponsorships, exactly. Right. So I basically never had that much... Um, um, yeah, outgoings for to 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 run any events. So it was just literally me organizing and hosting, right? And then all the ticket sales were pretty much uh, pure profit. I mean, like our like the profit margin at the time was like ninety percent or something. And so during that. You know, because I, I, I think if you're uh, an entrepreneur and you're listening, somebody's listening to your story right now. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of the, and I'm sure you can relate to this, but uh, you know, because obviously you're you're surrounded by entrepreneurs yourself. But so many people, when they're first starting out, there's so much fear around, uh, you know, how you know, 
if I leave my job, like I'm not going to have an income and how do I support myself yeah. until I can, you know, garner enough revenue to, to, you know, basically pay rent. What were you, did you have any other work at that time or were you literally sustaining yourself off of these events? Yeah. I mean, um, so no, basically. So I didn't have anything after I've, I've wrapped up my consulting contract with Selfridges. Um, I also had some work with Fortman Mason, but I also kind of like, you know, wrapped that up. So when I went full time on Blooming Founders in August, 2015, I had zero income basically. And um, I sustained myself from from my savings. Luckily, I had some savings. Um, uh, but I also had to cut, cut down my costs like dramatically, right? Um, so, so yeah, and I didn't monetize because I was also, you know, afraid of charging, right? Because I was like, <gasps> who would ever pay for my events? And also at the time, you know, I was hosting my, uh, my events on Google Campus primarily to actually have access to their traffic, right? So people then would sign up and, you know, to, to my event, right? And then I would put them on a newsletter and everything was free. So then that was okay for Google. Um, but I couldn't, I, I wasn't allowed to charge, right? So if I would have charged for the event, I wouldn't have been able to host it at Google. I wouldn't have gotten, you know, um, the traffics and nobody would have known about me, right? So I had to, I don't know when I started charging. I mean, basically when I, my savings really, you know, dipped. Um, but I think oh, that was about like seven, eight months in. I was literally running events like for eight months for free. And was this, did you have to put in some of your own capital to like give yourself runway while you were doing Yeah, I mean, I had to pay my rent and my food, right? right. Um, this is also she, like savings, basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I obviously didn't get extravagant on anything else, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, so that was... That's interesting. And so um, when did you, did you ever get to a point where... Uh, Blooming Founders was able to cover your costs, like cover your your living costs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it. Um, how long did that take? Actually, um, not immediately. Um, but I think after about like another six months or so, uh, I was able to cover my my own. So basically, after six months, so that that would be like around. I would say like around eight plus six. So what's that? Like fourteen months in, um, I didn't have to dip into my savings anymore. Fantastic. That's yeah. actually quite amazing. Um, that's a, it's a short amount of time, all things considered. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, some other people, it's, it's all relative basically. Right. I mean, yeah. honestly, if you ask me now, I should have started monetizing earlier. I was a bit too scared actually, because I know, because you know, like when you have that feeling, right? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs in the beginning have that feeling like, oh, you know, should I start monetizing, et cetera, et cetera. And then in my head, I was like, you really start charging because it's been like six months now, right? Of you showing up consistently, producing amazing events, et cetera, et cetera. You, you only get positive feedback, right? And it still took me like another couple months, basically, until I then actually monetized. Right. I mean, now I probably would have said it probably would have been fine to monetize after even four months. Right. So, I mean, that's, you know, I think that's a tough call to make because, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I'm sure you are remembering all the stress of those months when you were hesitant to monetize. And then as soon as you, you know, decided to start charging and saw the conversion and saw how positive that was. 
uh, it does make sense to have that feeling of like, oh, I should have done this earlier. At the same time, I could imagine that, you know, having those free events and allowed you to build up the top of the funnel much faster. Yeah, for sure. Which then allowed you to monetize on that. Because, you know, having been in similar situations myself with running events and, and trying to figure out how to convert that into something uh, financially, uh, as soon as you start to monetize, it slows down growth quite a bit, right? Because people- Yeah, are, yeah, yeah, completely, completely. So, yeah, yeah. and not to say that you're not right, obviously, but uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know. I think it's more, I think, I mean, you're definitely, I mean, I think that my strategy of, because basically, you know, I was feeding off Google's traffic, right? So that was, I was, and, and the reason why I was holding back was like, what if I nobody like you know discovers me anymore? Basically, right. So in my head, I was like, I need to build up my brand in a way that, you know, that's also like when I started the newsletter, like the, my weekly newsletter that I still do, right, to this day, uh, consistency, right, and um, and I was very much afraid of getting like like where like top where top line growth is completely stopped, right, because I knew I didn't have the money for online like Facebook ads or whatever it is basically. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so I was relying on kind of in the beginning, like definitely in my first year of feeding off other people's sources. Right. Um, and, but I think it's more like a mindset because I think as an entrepreneur, you know, now I'm trying to be like, I think it's a lot of like self-worth, um, you know, sort of thing as well. Cause there is like a mechanical things to it as in like, you need, you know, uh, a certain amount of top line audience, right, in your in your orbit, to then convert into uh, paying customers because there's always a conversion rate, right, and the conversion yeah, rate is yeah. always it's not, low. It's not, uh, this is something I think that you know, unless you're in sales, uh, people aren't aware of how this works. But basically, you don't convert 100 percent of the people who are interested in your. Product. Oh no, 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 no! I mean, if you can convert like five to ten percent, that's amazing. Right. Right. Like the average conversion rate on on I don't know, like just any any newsletter, right? Mm. Is is like two or three percent. Right. Right. So um, so that's like the mechanics, right? So I guess like you know the mechanics wouldn't maybe wouldn't have been as strong then, right? Because it's also like you have to think about when people come to the event, like it is a, a different vibe if there's you know thirty, forty, fifty people versus twelve. Right. Right. So, so I also kind of wanted to make sure that you know when when people come, um, there's like a decent amount of people, other people there, right, to kind of like show that hey, you know, this is a popular event, right. right. Um, but I I do think on the other hand is that what I see with uh, me and and other entrepreneurs uh, in our early stage is this kind of you. I've kind of waited a long time until I actually felt myself that my product was good enough. And I think that's sort of not feeling good enough, you know, is, um, is, I guess in my case, you can argue whether I was actually, I did it actually right, like at the right time. But I can definitely think of other occasions where I could have done it quicker, but I just struggled myself with like, oh, you know, is anybody going to pay for this? Right, right. All right. I mean, yeah, I think this is very relatable. It's especially because you and correct me if i'm wrong here but you grew into it organically it's not like you took a classic startup model where 
hey, this is my thesis. Uh, I want to execute on this very quickly and I want to scale it very quickly, um, which is one strategy, but can also fail quite fast because, you know, there was oftentimes there's like zero sort of market research done there. There's no uh, seeking of product market fit. Whereas what you did is you kind of naturally built up this community and you mm -hmm. actually saw that there was value in what you're doing, but maybe because it was so organic, you didn't really tune into the inherent value that was there. I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's, um, I think the question, you know, up till this day is like, how do you actually monetize a community-based business basically? Right, right? Right. Because I started with the community and that was, that was actually like, you know, what I, um, wanted to build, right? And and for me, it was kind of like I, the community is at the core, right? Like, so all of these people. And then I create products in the orbit of all of these people. And then, you know, like not every product will be for everybody, obviously, but, you know, there will be, there will be some people, basically, mm -hmm. right? So I just basically wanted to kind of build this product ecosystem, like this infrastructure, right? That, that serves that group of people. And, um, and and that's kind of like you know what I have like what was has been on my mind in the last five years. Um, now I think I want to flip it because I want I have seen you know some difficulties around building you know starting from the community. I think now I want to start something that starts from the product, um, where then you know the result of the the viewers, the audience, or the customers are then a community, um, but what they actually want is the product and not the other people uh, in the first instance, right? right? It helps that, you know, the other people are also like-minded or have some some common features and things like that because, you know, you, you kind of like be like, oh yeah, I'm in the right place because, you know, there are other people buying this product and liking this product or discussing about this product that are like me, but it is actually about the product, not the community um, for Blooming Founders moving forward. You know, it's interesting because you're touching on something that I think is very challenging for people who want to get to get into entrepreneurship but have no uh, obvious problem that they're trying to solve. Uh, the first challenge that they have is they literally don't have an audience to speak to, right? You know, they in the yes. world of startups, you always hear about get out of the building, go talk to founders, go talk to people about your product. But oftentimes it's like, well who do I talk to about this? Like what, where's the community? Where are the people? You already have that. So I would imagine that like one huge advantage that you have from all the years of work that you've done is that, and assuming that you want to target the, your existing community, but you, if you launched a product today that you believe is the target market is your audience that you've built up, you can have that conversation quite easily and quite quickly. And you know them and, you know, the feedback cycle would be very quick and of quality, right? Whereas, you know, and I'm sure you've seen this where, you know, people are just starting out, you know, maybe they've done a corporate job for one year, five years, 20 years, whatever. And they're like, I want to be my own boss. And well, the first challenge is, okay, you got an idea, go pitch it to people who you think would be the customer. And it's like, well, where are those, where are those people? You know, like, exactly. I, like, do I like, you know, the metaphor is get out of the building, but like, are you literally going to go walk up and down the street and talk to strangers? Well, are those strangers in the demographic of the people that, you know, if you're, yep. 
you, anyways, I think you get my point. And do you even know who you're serving, right? Or do you yeah, even, exactly. I think especially like, like me, right? I mean, I think that's also why it took me about three years, like of, you know, different consultancies and trying this and trying that. I mean, we've heard like the whole story, right? Yeah. Um, of actually finding something that, you know, I felt um, A, more aligned with B, where I then, you know, fell into like, um, not fell, but yeah, I guess I discovered like a mechanism where I could build my, build my audience for free, right, off Google campus. Um, and and I also saw, um, you know, the, the benefit of, of doing that, right? So I think, yeah, and then if you're sort of thinking about starting your own business, I think definitely understand that, like, don't do it just because you're bored in your job right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it kind of leads me to, it reminds me of this other irony too. It's that I think there's quite a lot of people that have established jobs that are facing problems that could be solved by entrepreneurship and, and technology, but they just don't have, like they don't have the exposure of, oh, wait, like it could be me that solves this problem and I could get funding and I could yeah. you know, build something on but this. But I think that's a different, that's a different situation then, right? Because yeah, I think, yeah. I definitely think there are people, you know, that are like right now thinking like, oh, maybe I should do something else, but I don't know. I don't have an idea. Right. I think if you don't have an idea, I think that's a tr very tricky place to to start. Basically, you yeah, have to exactly, exactly. find your idea or at least a passion, right? Yeah. And then you can start something around that. Um, but, but if you just like want to do something else because you're bored, then you have a lot of work to do. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but it's a, if it's you a long, are in a long game, it's, exactly. It's a long journey. I mean, it took me three years, right? Yeah. Um, and um, but but on the other hand, if you are someone who has a job and you actually discover challenges in your current job or in your industry and you think that hey i mean this is such you know this is so painful basically like why is nobody doing something about that and um you could see yourself as that person then to to change things because i mean the reason why i started blooming founders or focus on blooming founders was that all the events I would go to in London were so male dominated and there was just like no good events for female entrepreneurs, right? And uh, they were either super stuffy or non non-existent. Um, so I, I was like, okay, well, if, apparently nobody's doing something here. So I'm going to be this person who's going to do something, right? So you have to have the courage at some point, right? Because if you think that there is actually a genuine opportunity and a pain and a problem to solve, the rest is still difficult, but it's not impossible, right? It requires you to learn about, you know, uh, the startup, like the startup world, how everything works. It's, it requires you to network, uh, meet the right people, potential co-founders, um, you know, potential investors and things like that, which all take time. So don't, you know, don't think it's going to happen within like a couple of months. But uh, that is, that is, but it's, it's a good path to start on versus the person who's just bored. <laughs> um, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So, you know, you were talking about this idea of building out a product. Do you, do you think you would then consider maybe a more traditional startup path where you, you build a product and you get VC funding and, and you scale quickly? Or are you still sticking with the bootstrap route? Yeah, no, I'm still sticking with the bootstrap route because I'm not like I'm. I have enough self awareness that as a founder, I'm not, you know, I I'm not the founder to to um, 
lead and grow a venture backed business is just too much stress, honestly. Right. Right. Um, I'm, I'm kind of like, nah, you know, I want, like, I actually want to work less, not work more, <laughs> right. but actually have a higher efficiency on, on what I do. So I'm looking to go into media, right? And um, if you go on Twitter, like literally right now, there's actually a lot of discussion about how um, media is, is basically, because media is as scalable as tech, but you can actually manage it as a solo founder. Right. Gotcha. If you look at um, Joe Rogan, if you look at um, what's this kind of this guy who's then also is turned into a boxer, like this YouTuber dude. Um, oh, uh, Logan Paul. Logan Paul. Yeah. Right. Um, Mr. Beast. Right. That launched. I don't know how many burger restaurants now. Mm. <laughs> right. I mean, these people are started out by themselves. Right. Is doing yeah. their, their things. And once you have built actually sort of that distribution, because it's essentially, you know, reaching their audience's distribution, you can actually build on this like very easily, uh, you know, with, with a plethora of things to, you know, to, to, to your audience, right? Um, so, yeah, so that's actually something that's really interesting for me. I think that's going to be... Um, I think it's going to be like the next phase, you know. Um, we're always obviously going to have apps and and software and SaaS and all of these things, but um, I think we're just at the beginning of, you know, people build individuals build, building media empires that can grow quite big, um, and we're actually moving away from just the influencer types. Right, like if you're just like influencer for for the sake of influencing, like that's not gonna be be the model anymore, right? Like where where people sponsor you or you know sort of paid posts and things like that, because that's not really scalable. Um, but you will see more actually influencers, beauty influencers, for example, creating their own product lines, right? Like makeup, right. foundation, like whatever, right? Um, or uh, you know, other people like clothing lines, like whatever it is. I mean, that's that's also like I'm giving examples that are very common at the moment, but I think there will be other people such as Mr. Beast, right? I mean, he started the burger chain. I'm completely with you on that. I th and I think you're touching on something that I see people debating on, on Twitter all the time on, uh, you know, startup Twitter, VC Twitter, uh, in that, you know, you get these sort of rules or, or principles uh, around entrepreneurship and around startups that people feel like that they need to adhere to. But then you see all these exceptions to those rules and you're like, well, then there's no rules, you know, like you don't have to, you don't have to have a, you don't have to take on VC investments to create a huge scalable thing. You don't have to, um, you know, fall, fit into all these molds of what it means to be a tech startup yeah. to, create a ton of value. I think, you you know, you brought up a, a bunch of examples of people that not a, don't at all fit into those molds, but then were hugely successful. So yeah, I, I like, I like, I like this thinking. It's very, um, you know, as they say, it's, it's, um, 
funny enough, it's it's you can almost say it's contrarian, <laughs> but but it, it, but in the real sense, <laughs> exactly. Actually, yeah. actually contrarian. Yeah, exactly. Actually, As opposed it to, actually also works. You know, yeah. you can actually make money yeah. from it. Um, I think yeah, I think it's the beauty. I think you know we're um, you know because how how old is like this whole venture capital startup kind of like scene? Like you know, twenty years, thirty years? I don't know. I mean, yeah. it it got really popular in the last decade, right? And mm. um, to the extent that I'm pretty sure, like you know, people in, in my um, university, right? Like when they graduate university, uh, probably now it's not the cool thing to go into investment banking or consulting anymore. Now it's actually you either become a a, a tech like a high growth founder, or you go into VC, right? Yeah, yeah. So this whole ecosystem has become so popular, but effectively. You know, there's only that many companies in the world that actually have the opportunity, like real opportunity to become a unicorn and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think if people kind of, and that's what happened to me, right? I mean, I was chasing this dream of becoming a, a McKinsey consultant and then I joined and I was completely not aligned with who I am and what makes me happy. Not mm-hmm. that I know, knew at the time what makes me happy, but, you know, now I'm a bit older and I had the you know, opportunity to kind of think about the experience I, I've made. And I think... Um, I, I think entrepreneurship is great because it gives you the ability to become independent, right? Like financially, like like work-wise and, and, and all of that stuff um, in theory. But also within entrepreneurship, I think a lot of people are misled, right? By external things, factors that then they go and chase after because they think, oh, you know, if I if I want to be a good entrepreneur, I have to be, uh, I have to raise money, and all of that stuff, right? I have to go into tech, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if they really kind of like, you know, listen to themselves and, and sort of have this conversation with themselves, I was like, okay, what am I really good at? And what? Do, how do I even define success? Like really, right? Like what literally would, me, would make me super content? I think most of the people would realize that it's not running a company with like 400 people and trying to kind of, you know, push for, like for your IPO based on like some overvalued numbers, right? It's mm-hmm. probably something else, right? And I think, yeah. um, and I think um, that's where the opportunity at the moment is. I think we're just at the beginning of people realizing the, the opportunity um, of entrepreneurship uh, in creating, like sort of serving your own happiness and not serving like an image that you want to portray to the world because then you feel better about yourself because there's too many people also who try to do that and just completely burn out along the way, right? I'm loving this. I, you know, these are the real insights uh, from somebody who's, you know, been doing their own thing for a number of years here, who's been very much the heart of like one of the major startup ecosystems in Europe, um, and I think it's very accurate. You know, it's um, we need to, like you said, VC is very young, um, and it's evolving quite quickly. And I think it serves everybody to think about these things in new ways, and not to be so like strict about you know how we define entrepreneurship or startups and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, I think, you know, everybody could do better in thinking about really what makes them happy. Because I think we, most of our generation, like uh, people who are like in their 30s, maybe early 40s, well, definitely then, you know, if you're older than for sure as well. um, We grew up in a world where the formula was, 
You know, you go to school, you go to university, you go get a corporate job and you climb the career ladder, right? Mm. And that path is just kind of not, doesn't really exist anymore, right? And, and also, you know, it's not really aspirational because you're essentially giving your way, your power to other people. Right. This is, um, I think Dan Pink, he wrote that book uh, maybe a decade ago or something, but he's talking about what motivates people to work. And there was three things. Um, I can't remember all three of them, but one of them was like autonomy. Oh no, it was autonomy, meaning, and I forget the third one, but, um, but yeah, autonomy is like important to people, you know, um, nobody. Yeah. And meaning as well, right? Meaning, meaning yeah, as meaning well. as well, exactly. And it? you can have both. Like, you know, that's basically like what, why people actually, I think, go into entrepreneurship because it's not money in the first instance, right? Because yeah, exactly. you probably will lose money in the first couple of years or your net worth will decrease. Um, but you gain autonomy, you gain, you gain meaning, um, hopefully, through your work. And, uh, and then, you know, you, you work on the economics. So then, you know, when that works out, then theoretically, you should have the, the trifecta, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, I just looked it up. The third thing that he says is it's mastery. Mastery, okay. Yeah, yeah. so the idea of like, um, well, just getting better at something and, yeah. you know, that whole idea of being in the, in, the, in the flow, you know, like where you yeah. are working on something that's challenging. It's, you're using your brain, it's stimulating, but it's not so difficult that you're, you know, literally suffering. Um, but um, but yeah, no, that makes sense. So we're definitely over the hour mark here. Um, it's gone by incredibly fast because I've found this super fascinating. Uh, to wrap it up, um, I'd like to ask. So, do you have like you talked about this product? What, what's what's the future? What do you where do you think you're going to go with Blooming Founders? And I, I know you mentioned it a bit, but what? And I'm sure it'll evolve uh, in the coming months. Yeah. But, um, but what, what, yeah, where is this going, do you think? So right now on the Blooming Founders, we're um, you know, hosting this online event called Online Growth Summit. We're also placing interns. We're also still offering the virtual address and all of that stuff. So it's a bit kind of a bit convoluted because it's been like growing over the time, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm kind of cleaning things up a little bit. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to spin out the internship placement service. So right now, actually, how we actually made money in the pandemic is we connect um, startups and small businesses with academic interns or students who are who needed internship for uh, as part of their studies, right? And um, and because they need it for their studies, you actually, you know, legally, do, you don't have to pay them. You can pay them, obviously. That's always nice, but you don't have to. So that's a good value proposition, right, for startups. But I'm going to spin that out as a separate brand, kind of like a bit, almost kind of like, you know, a side hustle kind of brand. Right. And then Blooming Founders, I want to turn... Um, or evolve into this kind of educational platform and media brand, right? So um, I'm looking to create co courses um, that people can take and, and learn, right? And um, I'm actually thinking about starting a YouTube channel to just, you know, spread the, the knowledge, um, educate people, reach more people, et cetera, et cetera. Because I'm really positive. I'm really bullish on entrepreneurship as such. I think... I think everybody should actually have at least a side hustle, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you have a side hustle that you can monetize, you don't have to, you know, get crazy rich with it. 
but it gives you just kind of like an additional um, financial leg to stand on, right? Because some people like their jobs, believe it or not. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. No, but it's but, yeah. it's also it's not and not just the finance. It's you learn so much. It's you learn so much, exactly. Like the skills. I mean, I'm sure you learn a ton about you know creating this podcast and editing and um, all of that stuff, right? So yeah. So um, so I believe you know like everybody should have their side hustle. There's the majority of people have actually never thought about it, right? So that's huge like opportunity for people to learn how to set up like a small business, basically, right? So so that's kind of like where my mission goes. I want to impact. Um, well, <laughs> I actually thought about this. I mean, it's the first time I'm voicing this, Eric, so on your podcast. Oh, wow. This is a world, world premiere. <laughs> this is a world premiere. But basically, my new mission is to basically become a um, like... Basically, I want to I, I want to have a billion views, right? I want to become a billionaire in terms of views of people that have been impacted by my content. So total, like, so you're gonna launch a YouTube channel and you want to get the total number of all your videos views to a billion. Yes. I like yes. that. I like that. Goals are good. And that's I think that's a good goal. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll see. You know, we'll see how long it will take me. But and when, um, when you hit, when you hit that goal, you're gonna have to come back on the show. <laughs> yes, for sure, for sure. <laughs> I will. I mean, at that point, you'll probably be so busy. You'll uh, it'll take you uh, weeks, if not months, to uh, schedule. But uh, but yeah, we'll have to get you back on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I will come back. I will not forget my roots. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Um, Cool. Well, I like that. Um, I think this has been super, super interesting. I, you know, the, the goal of, or one of the goals anyways, of this podcast is just to get, is just to hear people's stories. Uh, Cause I think, you know, for you, you, um, for, for each of us who have kind of like experienced these stories, you sort of like forget how much we've learned, but for somebody who's just starting out or somebody who's maybe, had a different journey um, and is curious about how you got to where you are. There's just so much to be learned here and, and so many insights. And, and um, uh, yeah, anyways, I got a lot out of it. And so, yeah, I thank you very much for your time. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we'll, we'll invite you back, maybe even before you get to that billion views. <laughs> <laughs> maybe when I get to like a million already. Like, yeah, like exactly. We'll do like an that, order. That's a good goal as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Baby steps. <laughs> Baby steps. Exactly, exactly. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. It was my pleasure to, to join you today. All right. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on yet another episode of the MBA is Dead podcast. Please remember to subscribe and follow. We're on every single podcasting platform and social media channel as well as YouTube. Just search for the name of the show, The MBA is Dead. Also, and probably most importantly, if you are looking for resources on startups, startup accelerators, or entrepreneurship, do visit our website, thembaisdead.com. There you can find listings of hundreds of accelerators from around the world, all seeking founders who need funding. It's a great resource for any entrepreneur looking for cash investment or mentorship. So you should definitely check it out. Thanks again for joining and see you soon.